If you like our podcast, make sure you subscribe, rate, and, and review. Yes, and share it with your friends, please. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Welcome back to Cinema Chat with Kat and Nikia. We have a spectacular guest again today, um, continuing our empowering, strengthening, and uplifting month. We have an incredible guest named Jessica Mass. She is the Vice President of Aftercare at Our Rescue, which stands for Operation, Operation Underground Railroad. Yes. Yes, and they are a, a nonprofit organization that helps rescue children and trafficking victims all over the world. Nikki and I were fortunate enough to meet Tim Ballard, who's the founder of the organization, when we were in Utah a few years back. Yeah. And we've been working with them ever since and are so inspired by them. Um, and so Jessica has had a calling in her heart from the age of 13 to serve and and protect and just love on people in situations of abuse. Um, she's just got such an amazing heart and we're so honored to have her with us today. And not just human trafficking, she's also worked with uh, victims and gangs, mm-hmm. um, other child abuse situations, mm-hmm. um, those that are in low, um, low income. income. Yeah. Areas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she's she's really has such a heart for people. And is Jessica Mass. I am so excited. You too, I got a chance to listen to some of your other podcasts and such an honor to be with you guys. And I just love your guys's mentality and philosophy of having real conversations about real life stuff and um, I love your podcast. So thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thank you. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much. So, so much. This this one here has been my friend for, we met each other on the set of Power Rangers and um, we've been inseparable ever since. And we really wanted our, because we have a YouTube channel, um, which is all things Power Rangers for our Power Rangers fans, but we wanted our podcast to be Lot, you know, we wanted it to be different. We wanted it to be real where people really got an insight to our life and our, our lives and our experience and just the truth about who, you know, who we are. We're, we're just like everybody else and experience everything else, you know? Yeah. So. And we, we wanted to try um, for our first season, what you've listened to, we did kind of pepper in some Power Ranger guests or whatever. And we just really wanted to expand our audience and, and talk about real life issues that people might not even be aware of. And um, with, after working with Our Rescue, um, we just felt, feel very passionate about this cause. And there's so many things, as you know, that our people, the general public are not even aware about when it comes to human trafficking. And so um, we actually had Elizabeth uh, Frazier, who's a human trafficking survivor on our show. And um, it was very intense and, and amazing and enlightening and inspiring. Um, but you're following up her, and um, we just thought this was a great way to, to also show how much hope um, you're giving to these people that have suffered so greatly and how they are able to continue on in their lives even despite such horrific circumstances. And it's because of people like you and your organisations that bring such awareness to that. So we're so honoured and and so grateful to be a part of your organisation in such a small way um, and excited to talk to you today about what you what kind of work you do. Well, I love Elizabeth Frazier. She is a dear friend and just a beacon of light. She's incredible. So 
I'm so glad you guys got a chance to talk to her. And um, I think that that's one of the things that people don't know from the outside is that there is so much beauty and so much hope with all the things that people go through. And I get so much inspiration from survivors. I'm so lucky that I get to work in aftercare and helping people really heal and, and go through that journey. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with our rescue and a little bit about our rescue, what, what the organization does? Yes. So I've worked in nonprofit for a little over 20 years now and primarily with all different kinds of issues that are around children and teenagers. So gangs, um, drug overdoses, attempted suicide, um, the breakdown of the family, and primarily around sexual abuse. And so the path has been a long journey with getting involved with OUR, but I was living in Africa in 2014 and working in the hospitals there, helping doctors identify trafficking in the emergency room and then what to do if they do identify somebody that's gone through trafficking or if there was something that was um, going on in that specific situation and then how to ask sensitive questions and how to be trauma-informed in dealing with that type of a patient. And so when I moved back from Africa, I could live anywhere. I um, had lived in Utah before and had loved it. And since I'm not married and I don't have children, it literally was, you can live anywhere in the world. And so I moved back to Utah and shortly after got involved with OUR. And it has been an amazing journey over the last six years since I joined in 2015. And then Operation Underground Railroad is a organization that specifically helps those that are being trafficked. So children and women, and sometimes even men that are being trafficked. And so we work with exploitation, human trafficking, and our team helps support international governments and law enforcement in doing undercover operations. We always support, we never go in, we're not doing black ops and kicking down doors or anything like that. Everything is legal. We uh, believe in going through the front door and never the back door. And uh, our team is mainly former Homeland Security, CIA, special ops, law enforcement. So they're incredible on the ops team. And I'm so lucky I get to work with them. And then when an operation happens, we have already set up aftercare partners. And that goes into our philosophy of if you can find in-country partners that are already established, they understand their country, their specific city, the needs and what survivors have been through, then if we can collaborate and work in unity, then I believe that we're better together. So we help support and build up aftercare services in each country that we work with. Wow, that's incredible work. Um, so so with, with um, dealing with different countries, I mean, I know that you're, you go all over the world. Um, is it difficult in certain countries to get that kind of support um, with corruption, with other police departments or, or just, just a lot? There's a lot of red tape, I would imagine, that is, is in, in place. Um, how, do you, how do you feel um, 
or how does your organization get past that and and how do you even start that conversation yes well it's um I would say it's probably about the marathon and not the sprint. And so you go into a country knowing about the issues already. Sometimes we even have leads on cases, but we build relationships with their, with whoever it is that is in charge of their human trafficking units. And so with working with international policy, it's always a little bit challenging. There's always those complications that are tricky to work through and, so it's uh, about going in and building rapport and relationship. We let them know who we are and we see how we can meet their needs and how we can support them. It's kind of the same in aftercare as it is in building relationships with the operations or with governments is we really believe in you go in, you share what you can do, but then you sit at their feet and you listen. And I think a lot of times we go in with this mentality of I know better or I'm going to help fix something. But when we can go in and just sit at the feet of the experts in their country, whether that's government, aftercare, law enforcement, and just listen to them and say, how can we help you and let them lead the conversation, then I think that it goes back to that same thing that we can do more together than we can apart. And so we really try to focus on, on that aspect with building relationships with governments. That's beautiful too, because there's such a respect. I, I got that from Tim too. There's such a respect of each of the culture that you're going into. Um, and I really got that from him when we met him in Utah. Of just, um, He's just a really incredible person. Um, and we were really inspired by him because I know that you do a lot of work with the um, the black net as well. So there's not just going into countries, but also dealing with this, the cyber aspect of this, which is uh, uh, really huge. huge, really huge and extremely uh, eye opening when you realize um, how deep that goes. Um, so we were just so like blown away with some of the stories he shared with us. So, Yeah. You have served, um, you have just reading your resume, you have been just in a life of service. At what age did you know that this was something that you were called to do? Because I feel like it's a calling, like God has called you to do this. At what age would you say that you felt you were called to do this? Well, I grew up on a farm in the Midwest. So let me just like plant the roots of like where it all started. So on a farm and my parents are both my heroes for different reasons. And they had the courage to let me as a 13 year old go to the inner city of Brooklyn, New York. And I went on a church missions trip. So farm girl from the Midwest, suddenly in Brooklyn, New York. And um, I just saw that you can make an impact in the world. And as a 13 year old, when we were working in some of those different projects and areas and seeing people's life is very different than mine. It was very different than growing up on the farm. And those people were so incredible that I met when I was in the projects and they were so full of hopes and dreams and trying to figure out how they could get there. And there was this song, I was on a church missions trip. So we worked with the Brooklyn Tabernacle and there's this song that says, if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. Use me. Yeah, I love that song. Yes. 
use anything, Lord. You can use me. At one of my favorite songs. Oh my gosh, it just brought some <laughs> tears to my eyes. Oh my goodness. That song changed my life. And it was that song that when you're a 13 year old and you truly believe it, because nobody's told you that you can't, you just believe that God, if you can use anything, you can use me. So here I am, take my hands, Lord, and my feet. And so if, if that's real and you believe it as a 13 year old and it gets inside you, then it changes your entire life. And so for me, even I love working with teenagers because I believe that you can have a calling from a young age and it doesn't have to be nonprofit or my path, but I do believe that teenagers are powerhouses. They care about so many things and they're figuring out who they are and what they want to do with their short time on this earth. And, and so that was a part of my journey of going and getting the honor of serving next to the Brooklyn Tabernacle and, and just believing that song. And so that's All these years later, very brave of your parents. Yeah. And this is something that that as a parent, I really think is so important is uh, is we have to teach our kids how to get out of their bubble and see beyond their own world. And that is that is the 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 cure to ignorance. <laughs> I feel like if you just expose, then you are less afraid of things that you don't know. And that's what is is lacking in this world and why we're in this position is because people don't understand what's different from them and they're afraid of it and it bubbles into other things. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Were you, yeah. were your parents also um, parents of faith? Did you grow up in the church? Because I, I asked that because I, I remember as a child, I was like the only one in my household. <laughs> my grandmother had taken me to church. I would go to, to church with my, my grandmother. My, my parents believed in God. My brothers believed in God, but they just, they didn't go to church. And I'd come home and preach to them. Don't listen to that. And don't do that. You know, and all that <laughs> stuff. I was like the, the Bible walking person in the house, but my, my parents, I would, you know, I'd want to go and serve and I'd want to go do this or do that. They would allow me to do that. Um, just because they believed that God would would cover me. Did you grow up in um, your household with godly parents? You said that they were your heroes. So did, what was the Bible taught in your house? And they just knew that when you go to Brooklyn, God is just going to cover you. Everything's just going to be fine. How, how was that in your household? Well, let me just honor your story first. That's so incredible of your strong heart and faith from such a young age. And that's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, my parents, yes, they both were Bible believing church going Midwest folks. <laughs> and um, I think it did take a lot of faith on their part. And it has led even to what I do today, because my parents can only handle so much of the details. But they just believe that if you are doing what you're supposed to do with your life, whatever that is, whatever you feel like either God's leading you to do, or if people don't have faith in, in God or don't believe in God, then whatever it is that they feel that they're supposed to do in life, then my parents have always been champions of that. And there is something about having parents that 
um, encourage you and parents that I think, like you said, expose you as well to things that you might not naturally be exposed to where, um, we can help bridge those gaps. If you are a parent to be able to, to really help your children know that you can make an impact in the world. And here's a world that looks different than your own and helping a child know those things. My parents, I, they're, my dad is the most, he's a saint. He's just such a quiet, humble man that just serves. And I've watched him serve since I was little. He fixes people's cars for free all the time, just because he has that talent and, and he likes to do that as his hobby. And my mom started taking us to homeless shelters and nursing homes when I think from the time I could walk. So So having that exposure and having parents that are kind and humble, and they really taught me that every, every stranger is just a friend waiting to happen. And so you walk around with this mentality that I learned from a young age of how can you ascribe unsurpassable love and worth with everybody you come in contact with. And if that is our mentality then I think it helps us remember that regardless of what my background is or somebody else's background, our job here on life is to ascribe love to each other and that everybody has unsurpassable worth. You just never know what someone has gone through. And that's what I'm trying to teach my kids, especially after talking to Elizabeth and everything. It's like, there could be a kid sitting in the class that seems strange or dresses differently or doesn't want to talk to people. And they could be a child going through this. They could be a child of human trafficking. They could be going through severe abuse. And so you just you just never know what's happening in someone's life. And it, when you really think about that, it makes you much less judgmental of people and the why they're responding to us the way they are. So um, so just to kind of parlay into a little bit more about um, your, your work that you're doing, um, how important would you say the aftercare program is um, with these victims? How, how important and how willing are they to accept that care? I think what Tim says and, and the rest of our operations team, I agree with, is there's no rescue or intervention without aftercare. If there's not something for someone to go to and have that support, then then what are we really doing? And so I think aftercare is vital to, to somebody's healing. And that looks different with every different situation. Some children, they are after their rescue, there's an intervention, then they would go to an aftercare home for a few weeks and be um, evaluated on in-home visits with their family, if they have family members, if their family members, the one who trafficked them, things like that. And there's kids that stay in an aftercare home until they turn 18. And so there's a wide range of what aftercare looks like. And we really believe that if you can meet somebody where they're at, no matter where they're at, then that's what aftercare is. So there's, girls that we've helped with doing different medical needs that they've had, that they haven't had the funds, but they had a severe STD that was going untreated 
or they, um, I worked, one of the girls I worked with, she was 10 and giving birth to her first child. And so her journey of trying to work through that and go through all of the process, her family was, um, not a safe space for her to go back to. So she stayed in the aftercare home. I've now known her for six years and she's 16 and she is one of the most incredible, beautiful humans. And she is full of light and love and gratitude for, for the aftercare home. But if that aftercare home wasn't there and you have a 10 year old that's rescued, who's pregnant and trying to, and then put back into a home that she's not safe in, she would have, I, I don't even want to think of the worst things that could happen or would have happened to her. So we believe in helping support and build up aftercare homes and in-home services and education. We've had the opportunity to build a lot of vocational training programs, which helps provide jobs for survivors after they're transitioning into the workforce. And so vocational training is so important, but then we also do mentorship when they're starting their own business or they're going to a job and they're being triggered. And so those are different things in aftercare that I think it speaks to what we all need. So I always want people to understand, even if they haven't been trafficked, we all have a human need for connection. We need people in our corner standing by us and fighting with us. And that's what survivors need. That 10-year-old needed people in her corner fighting with her. And, and because of that, she wants to go on to be a social worker. She tells me all the time about how she wants to help other people. And uh, there's a lot of survivors that we work with. Uh, there's one in particular, in particular right now that um, she is in her college years and she wants to become a nurse. And so we're paying for her to go to university to become a nurse. So there's from the time somebody's rescued until, I mean, I've been to so many baby showers and weddings and graduations. That's aftercare. It's really coming alongside somebody for their full journey as long as they want us to. We would never push ourselves on anyone, but we want them to know that we're here for them and try to do, try to let them know that they're never going to be alone again. Sorry. In your experience of uh, dealing with human trafficking, most people, a lot of people think that um, human trafficking victims are children or women that you find on the street that are homeless. Um, what has that looked like for you? Statistically, where do these human trafficking victims, where, where do you find them? Are there the normal neighborhoods, uh, middle-class neighborhoods, upscale neighborhoods, homeless? Like what, what demographics would you say um, or is the majority? The majority you would find human trafficking victims. Honestly, all of the above. Um, I'll tell you a story though that I think that people miss sometimes because they do think it's only someone that has run away from their home or has been locked inside um, a brothel or something like that. The first little girl that I worked with was six months old when she was trafficked. She was advertised on Craigslist by her middle-class family in a very nice neighborhood. 
they advertised her as the person would show up at their door. So they knew that when they came to that person's door, that they were going to be able to rape their little baby and molest their little baby. Can I stop you for one second? When you say advertise on Craigslist, what, how do you advertise on Craigslist something like that? Is there code words? Is there things that they say? Is there symbols? How does someone know that, that a child is being trafficked on Craigslist? They use certain terminology. Yes, so they, they know what they're doing. They know who their audience is. And so they use certain terminology to let that person know. And then there's exchange back and forth with dialogue to verify that they are, that those two people are connecting. And so it's absolutely, I, it's absolutely horrific. Horrific. I can't imagine um, doing that to a child, let alone a parent doing that to their own child. And they had a studio set up in their basement. And so when the person showed up at their door, they'd walk down the stairs the little baby sitting on the table and they film it while this man is sexually abusing this little baby. And that happened for the first four years of her life that she went through that before she was rescued. That's in the United States. That was by her parents. She was interacting in the community. People knew who she was and in her own home, this was happening. And her parents' mentality was, well, we can make double the amount of money off of this child because the person coming to her house, they have to pay to rape and to sexually abuse my child. But then I'm going to sell the video. And the video was sold in multiple countries. And so I think that those are some of the things that people think that could never happen, that it would only happen in certain countries or situations and that was in the United States of America in a middle-class family and in a neighborhood that you would never think that this could be going on. And to go back to your point originally of when you were interviewing other people of to look out for other children, to help our kids know that if somebody's being weird, that every behavior has a reason. So maybe there's a reason behind while that child is acting out or really having a difficulty controlling their anger or something like that, because it really does happen in every situation. I mean, we work in, I, we work in aftercare in 30 countries. And so I could go through each country and give different examples of the primary way that somebody's trafficked. But I think that it's so important for us to know that it can be anyone, anytime. What people are doing, especially when over 2020, is they were going into people's homes, meaning there was cameras, they were tricking children. There was a case that um, one of our partners worked on that was a seven-year-old that it was on a Tonka truck game on an online game and there's a chat board and a message board. And this person was pretending to be a peer, a seven-year-old boy as well. And that person got that little boy to take off his clothes and they filmed it and then they sold that video. So it's those types of things where as parents, we wanna be educated. We wanna help our children understand, of course, an age appropriate understanding, but how to not feel shame or guilt if something happens to you that you can let a safe adult know 
and that it was never their fault. And that if something did happen, that will help them through that type of a situation. My son actually had an, uh, uh, it was, it came close. It wasn't someone that um, was dangerous that actually turned out to be a child, but you just don't know when it's through a game. And I ended up showing him because he was 12. I felt it was appropriate to show him um, a boy that had been exactly what you said. He'd been tricked and, um, and led to someone's house and was killed. Um, and it's just so, it, it happens so easily. And these kids, if they're not told what to look for, they can so easily fall into that. Um, and right under our noses. And I didn't, I didn't know how prevalent it was amongst high schoolers with boys leading girls to parties and then uh, filming them and then using that as blackmail. There's so many stories that I've learned about um, that, that I just would never, ever have known. And we've just got to do better about getting that information out to people. It's not in, just in third world countries. Like that story you just told, that horrific story is right here in our communities. And um, you, have to, you have to be able to, to look for those signals. So, so what kind of, in your experience, what kind of things have you seen in the cases you've worked on um, where people, what did people see in some of these kids and what gave them, the child, the courage to, to tell someone? Or was it more they were, the t- a teacher saw a bruise or what, what kind of um, things can we look for? I guess that's my question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So a variety of different things. Bruises, yes, for sure. If you see a bruise on a child, at least getting a story as to why that happened. But things like if a child suddenly has a new cell phone or is getting these expensive items that you know their parents either wouldn't give them or would be out of their budget things like that, because a trafficker is going to use grooming behaviors to get the heart of that child. Um, there's other things that you can look for uh, as far as dressing a little bit differently. Some of the kids that I've worked with, they went from um, dressing age appropriate to being uh, more provocative in their dress. And um, you can look at, at things like uh, they were interacting and they had a social group. And now they're trying, they're isolated. They have disengaged with some of their friendships and relationships because a trafficker is going to try and isolate that child. They want them to not be sharing. They want to try and say that nobody else is actually your friend. They don't care about you. Your parents are awful, all these different things. So if you see them suddenly not engaging with friends and their community, there are um, things like, Suddenly they have a lot of stomach pains. Something has been going on physically with their body, meaning if a child has been being trafficked, there's going to be a physical side of things that happens to them. So maybe they start complaining about stomachs or um, infections, uh, different things like that. So really listening for some of these different things. Children, I think, are telling us even when they don't have vocabulary to say what's happening to them, especially little kids, they're not going to have necessarily the vocabulary to say, so-and-so is doing this to me. But if they say, I just don't feel comfortable around that person, honing in on some of those, those clues that children are giving us, I really do think can, can open the door to them feeling safe to share more and more. Yeah. 
do victims, sorry, I just have to ask one more question. Do, do victims, um, uh, like, have you experienced victims posting things on social media um, that they feel safer somehow doing that as opposed to telling someone in person in, in this teenage age group? Like, that has happened before. Yeah, like posting inappropriate content or, because I, I, I've had that experience, so I'm just seeing if that's something they would do typically. Yes, I've worked with some kids that have done that, whether that's pictures or um, swimsuits or things like that, where they normally wouldn't post something like that lingerie. Uh, the other thing is I've seen teenagers that we've worked with post almost cries for help. Uh, what, what's the point of life? I don't want to be here anymore. Um, things like that, where on social media, really, it's a cry for help but they're not necessarily saying I'm being trafficked or I'm being sexually abused or exploited, but they are saying something is wrong. Is there an adult that can at least check in on me? What can we do? If we see these signs, what do we do? Do we call 911? Do we call police? Who do we talk to? I think that's, that's part of the problem too. People will see things that are going, they'll, you know, say, oh, that's not my problem, or they want to help, but they don't know where to call. I remember I was on vacation with my family. We were in Rome. And I know without a doubt, this child was being trafficked. And the, they were sitting next to us. And I was looking at my husband, you know, I'm in a, we're on vacation. I, I was so, boy, I didn't know what to do. I, 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 I saw that the, she was in these very high heels, very, very short skirt. This um, younger gentleman was with her. I'm, I'm not going to say gentleman because he wasn't a gentleman, but I could tell that it was his, his, her pimp type person that was kind of pimping her out in a sense. Um, but she looked like she was 14 or 15 years old. And I didn't know what to do. And so my husband's like, you can't do anything. We're in a foreign country. I don't even know the language. I So out there or even here, who do we call? Who, who do we message? Who, what do we do? Good question, Kia. It is the worst feeling to feel like you're helpless when you see something. So it, our, that we, we believe that if you see something, say something, but then you also have to know what to say. And I've had so many survivors tell me, that they just wish somebody would have come up to them and asked them, are you okay? That simple question. And, and I think when we can say that to a child, it says, even if they don't report it in that moment or they don't say something to you in that moment, maybe that says to them, somebody is watching. Mm -hmm. When I am ready to have the courage to be able to tell somebody, or I have a, a time when they're not watching me, or I actually believe that this person will help me if I say something, asking that question, are you okay? Is one of the things I encourage everyone to do if they see something. The other things is calling the FBI. It sounds so scary to call the FBI or call the police. And I, the first time I called I was actually nervous. I was like, I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what questions they're going to ask, but you can make uh, reports that are anonymous. You don't have to share your information necessarily, but you can share everything else if you don't feel like sharing your own information. 
calling the Polaris hotline gives you references and things that you can also um, have more resources. So an example of that would be the, the Polaris hotline is the national human trafficking hotline for the United States. A lot of countries have that. So even if you're in another country, you can Google human trafficking hotline and a lot of the countries will have that hotline that can come up and you can give that phone number to someone. But if you call it when you're here in the US because you think something's going on, maybe it's a situation where it's a neighbor and you're not totally sure what to do, they'll give you the resources of who to call, the local services in your specific community, the aftercare police, everything that can really help with that intervention if needed. So I encourage people to call them as well. Also calling the police as scary as it sounds sometimes, again, because if you're calling the FBI, you're calling law enforcement, what are they going to say when when they're asking you all these questions? Are you going to have all the answers? And you might not have all the answers, but making a report is something that could even get filed that there's a report that's made again in a year that then they're able to look back and say, okay, there's been a history of this. This is not a one-time one person reporting. So I would say, ask the child or the adult, are you okay? Don't be afraid to call these phone numbers. And then of course, be educated on what are the signs to look for if somebody is being trafficked so that you can say, I'm seeing something, what should I do based on, on these signs that I'm seeing? Yes, thank you. There is also, um, we're going to put these resources below for anybody that is is listening so that you can have the links available to you. But there's also um, uh, training videos um, that you can watch on trafficking and what signs to look for um, uh, and that they're also very helpful. So we'll put those links below also. Um, Jessica, your wealth of knowledge, this is so important what you're sharing. We could talk Talk for hours, hours and hours. But we're not going to. (laughs) So we'll we'll wrap it up with a final question. Yes. If you could go back to your childhood self, what would you tell yourself? What what inspiration would you give to yourself? What advice? Advice. Hmm. I think I would tell myself, Don't let anyone else set limits on you. If you believe or you have a dream, just keep going for it. Everybody in life, there's always going to be people that are wanting to tear you down or tell you your dream isn't worthwhile or tell you you're not good enough or you're not doing a good enough job. Keep pressing on and and press on with joy and just loving as many people as you can. And you can't focus on the people that are trying to tear you down, but you can focus on those that are, that are building you up and, and just keep going and be full of energy and, and joy and everything that you want to be just press into it, lean into it. That's what I tell my childhood self. I love that. Do you feel like, I know that's that, that was our, um, ending question, but I just in listening to the advice that you would give your little self, can you remember a time where someone told you that you were not good enough or you were not going to like, this was not the route you were supposed to take, but you overcame that. And was like, you just don't, I I have faith that this is that I'm going to overcome that. Or I have faith that whatever you're saying to me is not true. Can you pinpoint a time in your life? 
where someone told you something like that? Both as a child and an adult, I can pinpoint times. Um, yeah, I remember this one time when I was in eighth grade and I, you know, cause I knew what I wanted to do when I was 13. So then when you're 14, you're like, I got this figured out. Like, I know what I want to do. I'm good. And I remember people, I remember the specific time of someone, an adult telling me, you actually don't know what you're going to do. You're going to change your mind a million times. And you really need to stop focusing in so much on working in nonprofit and working in the inner city or within gangs or um, helping those that have been sexually abused. You need to stop really focusing on that. And I just remember looking at that teacher and saying, that might be true for some people and that's okay. And I support their path, but that's not my path. Yes. 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 And I I wanted that follow-up question because I think it's so important. I think everyone has experienced someone telling them that they are not going to succeed in something. They've had that moment and and they believed them. So we encourage our listeners to know whatever God has placed in your heart or, or whatever feeling, the strong passion, the strong desire that you have inside of your heart. If you believe that that is what you are chosen to do, then you go out and you do it and don't allow anybody to tell you no. When I was auditioning for um, UCLA to get into the School of Theater for the very first, it was the first year that they were opening up to incoming freshmen. And um, they were only allowing 50 students in. There was um, an upperclassman uh, that had gone to high school with me and she had gotten into UCLA under a different major. I can't remember, sociology or something. And I remember her telling me, Nakia, it's going to be too hard. You just, you just shouldn't audition. Just declare another major just so you can get inside the school. And then, you know, you could eventually switch over. And I remember telling her, you don't know my God. You just don't know my God. I'm going to audition for this school. That's what I'm going to do. And if God says I'm going to get in, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. And so that's exactly what happened. But there's been so many times in my life um, as a child and as an adult where people are saying you're not good enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. And it can be so discouraging. But use it as fuel. Yes. You keep moving forward. You keep moving forward. It's like the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was by his own family. Yeah. And he became a king. (laughs) (laughs) He was the most powerful man in Egypt against all odds, an Israelite. And it makes me think about that. God can use anybody and any circumstance. And Elizabeth shared that with her story. God is using her in such mighty ways, even in her brokenness. We're all broken in some way. And he's powerful. He can use you, use your life for beautiful things. And you just have to listen. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. And I think that sometimes people see who we are, but they don't see some of the pain that we've gone through to get to where we are. And, but anyone can make a difference in this world. And that might be having a smile and giving a kind look, or really when you're asking the person that's do that's checking out your groceries in the grocery line how are you doing and looking them in the eyes things like that and i do think that we can all make a difference and we've all been through we've all been through stuff like it's been this journey is not easy and i think that 
I would even want to just make sure that I say that message too. If there's anyone that's being trafficked right now that's listening, please don't give up hope. Please reach out. Please know that your life matters, that this is not the end of your story, that there can be a completely different ending. And if there's anything that we can do for you at Operation Underground Railroad, we want to fight for you and fight with you. And I just encourage if anyone is being trafficked to reach out for help. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much, Jessica. Thank so you. much for being Thank on you. our show. You're amazing. Yes. Yeah.